Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Have you been to any divorce parties lately? It seems to be a trend that continues to grow. The idea that women are happier, able to find happiness, pursue their dreams and all their aspirations if only they could be divorced. We know as Catholics it goes against what the Catholic Church teaches, that marriage is faithful, it's permanent, it's fruitful, you totally give yourself. And yet there's a growing trend of many things. And we were discussing not too long ago the trends of divorced moms moving in together and raising their kids together. And these mom unions that are building, even reality TV shows coming out about them. But Does it actually touch on the nitty-gritty challenges of why these marriages are falling apart? What is happening? There's a trend right now, even in Catholic circles, where you think, hey, that marriage looks great. They're going through all the motions that seemingly are perceived as good to keep a marriage together, and yet so-called good, faithful, strong marriages are falling apart. Why? I think There's much to be said, and so we'll dive into a recent Washington Post article written by one woman who wrote the book, This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. Casey Chalk will join me in just a moment. He's an author and freelance writer, also diving into his incredible story of how men need older male mentors and how men, as they start to age, continue to age, They need the appreciation of young men. He'll share the incredible story of his neighbor, Captain Bob. Also, you may have heard the news about the Alabama Supreme Court a couple weeks ago putting a stop to how we view the human person in its early stages of development as discardable. They actually extended that the babies who are conceived, created via in vitro fertilization, the embryos frozen, are actually equal with other children and have protections under the Constitution. But what's happening as a result of this? Well, three IVF clinics have stopped a business in the meantime, and the debate over IVF continues. We'll touch on that later on here in the show, but also joining me tomorrow to share her story of having gone through IVF and even had children through IVF will be medical doctor Susan Caldwell, who actually provides solutions for women struggling with infertility that aren't IVF. She'll share her story of IVF and why she would never recommend it to anyone. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Casey Chalk's joining me now. He's an author and freelance writer. You can find his writings at many places, from First Things to also his website, CaseyChalk.com. Casey, you and I spoke earlier, and you shared with me this outstanding article from the Washington Post written by Liz Lenz. She runs the substack Men Yell at Me, and she's the author of many books, one of which includes chronicling her story, This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. She wrote this article on the Washington Post, really celebrating 
what is very common today of, hey, let's celebrate divorce. Don't say I'm sorry. This is when my life began as a woman. And this is when your life will begin if you could only get that divorce because your husband is what's making you unhappy. I dove into her story, Casey, and the premise is there. You're happier when divorced and miserable when married if there's any dissatisfaction. And her story's sad. You read her story, Casey, and it chronicles her being married, I think, for somewhere around 11 years, uh, having two children and struggling through the challenges of having a toddler and a baby and the emotional terrorists that they can be the difficulty of navigating home and family and expectations and disagreements surrounding your spouse. And part of her story includes that as she'd been writing uh, for various political online websites, she was eventually contacted to write her own book. And when she started to work with a publicist to write a book on politics, liberal-leaning politics, she ended up asking her husband for more help around the house. And as she asked him to pitch in simple things such as maybe just running to the grocery store or vacuuming, it was met with very little help and he decided he wanted to have another baby. And He started to push for another baby saying, hey, you don't have to work on this book. You can just relax. Let's have another baby. And you don't have to worry about that. If you want to write, you can write, you know, something like an entertaining novel and you can spend less time on your writing and just do it at night when the kids are asleep. I want you to have a comfortable life. And so long story short, she ends up divorcing her husband. They have 50-50 custody. And she said that's what it took for her husband to pitch in but also for her to enjoy her life and pursue her aspirations. There's much more to the story, but I'd love to dive in with you, Casey. Welcome to Trending. Hey, Timory. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's a real pleasure to be with you again. I'd love to hear your initial thoughts on what sparked your interest when you read this story of Liz Lenz and her perspective on how ending your marriage kicks off your life. Yeah, so... Of course, as a Catholic writer, I've written a good bit on the importance and value and social benefits of marriage, and there's plenty of research out there to substantiate that, written by um, great sociologists who happen to be Catholics at major secular universities like uh, Bradford Wilcox at University of Virginia or Mark Regnerus at University of Texas, Austin. And these guys have done a tremendous amount of research to demonstrate that you know the best outcomes both for couples and for their children, is when uh, men and wife uh, stay together uh, for the entirety of their marriage, raising their children, that it's uh, it's going to be the most beneficial for the kids and result in the, the least amount of detrimental outcomes for them so that they have the best chance of success uh, in education and the workforce and happier, um, re- higher rates of happiness for couples as well. So this article um, very much uh, speaks against that uh, that research and that premise that's been certainly very popular in conservative and Christian circles for a long time by arguing that actually there are quite a few women out there who are very unhappy, very unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and that divorce actually is the, the best answer for them. It's going to be um, what will be um, most fulfilling for them, but also potentially even better for their children because so the argument goes is that if the kids are being raised in an unhappy marriage, um, then that's going to result in all kinds of negative emotional or psychological outcomes for them. So they'd be better off just um, splitting time between parents who are happier and able to fulfill their own professional or personal pursuits on their own. That whole idea that if I'm happier, I'm a better parent 
and it's hard for me to swallow Casey because I'm I'm in that season of the thick of kids and navigating all of those things that it's easy to say and I know you're in it as well that the day-to-day can be a grind and I think sometimes we just put our noses to the pavement and we keep them there and we keep them there and we keep them there until we snap and we're seeing this predominantly among women today and when the snap happens it's that point in time in which they go I don't have to be here I'm not happy. And the argument that Liz Lenz makes in her article with the Washington Post is essentially that men's happiness shouldn't be at the cost of the wife's happiness. And therefore, the idea is, is that you got you to step out. You've got to go. You've got to leave. And I think that whole idea of women are trapped in marriages and the only way they can be happy is by pursuing their dreams. It It's so challenging, Casey, because we live right now in this time where we hear a lot in the mom culture about me time and self-care. And yeah, I was talking to a friend a couple nights ago, and she said, I remember talking to my mom about that and how I was kind of starting to navigate, you know, I need some me time and I feel like I need a little bit of a break. And her mom just looked at her and said, I don't believe in that. It's ridiculous. She said, please don't succumb to the culture that says you need you time. This is what life is. You're raising children. And not that you can't step away for a moment here and there, but that it's not this, hey, let me go and take a vacation and ditch my kids. Let me go to work because my kids are too much. There's this idea, I think, that a lot of women are struggling to cope in the day-to-day. And at the same time, I think a lot of men aren't pitching in as they should and could. And that's what's challenging about the story is that she really does chronicle the husband wasn't really willing to dive in. And I hear this among my peers. A lot of husbands, Casey, you know, help, heaven help them if their wife leaves to go to the grocery store, they're calling and blowing up the phone. When are you going to be back or take half the kids with you? Yeah, I think this article definitely presented a challenge to me because reading her story, I was very sympathetic to her plight. The fact that it did sound, I mean, certainly we're only hearing one side of the story. So who knows if her husband were to write a book, maybe we would get a very different perspective on what their marriage looked like. But at least as far as her story goes, it really did sound like her husband was not pitching in in ways that were not particularly onerous or demanding on him. I mean, things like you said, Timory, that women, um, just sort of demographically as a percentage speaking, typically are the ones doing cleaning, getting the groceries, childcare, etc. And I did really feel and sympathize for her in that sense because I do think that, like you said, Timory, there's a tendency maybe especially in conservative and and Catholic households, that there is an expectation that there are certain tasks that the women will do and certain tasks that the men will do and never the twain shall meet. And at least from my perspective, I think that that can be really damaging and uh, to to a marriage and really undermine the sense of partnership and love. Um, And, you know, like I I know some guys, for example, who uh, they've never changed the diaper in their life. I think if... um, Mm. If I told my wife tomorrow that I was never going to change another diaper, then I'd probably be sleeping on the couch. But, you know, I'm also fine with (laughs) with that because I know that, you know, I guess my perspective would be that my goal as a husband is to love my wife and serve her and support her and care for her. So if there are things that need to be done in order to assist her to make the running of the household uh, a happier place, more peaceful and effective place, then, yeah, of course, I'm going to pitch in with diaper changes and cleaning and groceries and all the rest of it. And uh, I think what I would encourage men who 
maybe think a little bit more in the traditional gender roles perspective would be that you know you don't necessarily you don't have to abandon your masculinity masculinity just by doing a little bit of cleaning or grocery shopping or childcare that those are tasks that i mean also that you know I think we have an idealized understanding of uh, the mid 20th century American household is viewing it as kind mm -hmm. of like the pinnacle of what family life was like. But um, I read enough history to know that uh, family life prior to that time when men and women were both working basically out of the household is that there was much more sharing of duties. So this yeah. understanding that men and women um, uh, inhabit these very different isolated gender roles is also a bit of an anachronism, right. uh, historically speaking. Yes, and I think that that's a problem, this idolization of the 1950s household, the 1950s marriage. And prior to that, you saw, as you mentioned, a greater delineation of work within the home. And I even think if you look to sacred scripture, I think of the Proverbs 31, where you have this discourse at the end of the book of Proverbs about a quote, a good wife. And much of it speaks about how the woman is resourceful, has strength, has strong arms, has strong loins, has um, can sit there and perceive the profit of her work, that she's helping in the buying and selling of fields. She's finding resources to help care for her home. You read that and you see there's a significant amount of work that a woman does. But when you see it, it's not about her pursuing her own dreams and delights. It's not about her feeling happy in the moment. But it's about grit at the same time as there's an appreciation for the grit that's being done. That those who are entrusted to her care are being nourished with the grit that's being pitched in. And I see this trend in this movement. And you see a lot of memes about it online, about the trad life, traditional marriage. And yet you mentioned this idea that it can be diminishing for men to participate in some of what are referred to traditionally over the last let's say 70 years as domestic duties and people joke about men being um becoming domestic and yet i think there's this enabling that's happening on one side there's a sensitivity of men not wanting to change a single diaper as you mentioned i remember there was a big a dispute about that last year in the catholic world online and then there's the problem at the same time casey I think of women enabling their husbands and fueling what I would say is ultimately codependency, that they want to feel so needed that there is that situation where the husband's like, I can't, I can't last with the kids. You can't leave. You have to take half of them with you. You can't go to the grocery store. I'm not being able to care for their own children. And it's sad because on one side, sure, you see men aren't willing to pitch in. But on the other side, I really do see, well, that's okay. Go. And as your phone keeps ringing because he's having a hard time, no, it's okay to just not be available and leave your phone in the car while you grocery shop real quick. And I think that there's a lot of that side of the enabling argument that's not being discussed today. Oh, yeah. I think that's fascinating. I hadn't really heard a lot about the um, the, the enabling aspect of it, but I 100% I agree with you. I think a lot of the problem, too... Um, is an idealization of professionalism and careerism, this sense that um, when we are most ourselves, when we are most fulfilled, it's when we're pursuing some sort of career. And I think that that is um, grossly misguided because at least from my own perspective, and I tell this to people, even though we, you know, my wife and I, we have, I guess what you would call more traditional marriage arrangement where I'm the primary breadwinner and my wife is staying home and homeschooling the kids. But um, I tell people all the time, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd much rather be with my family than I would 
be, you know, stuck in an office all day. Um, and not to say that, you know, that my career is not something that's important to me that I value um, and that I, you know, I hope to succeed in, but it's, it's for an end. The career itself is not the end. The, the end is the, certainly the glory of God, but also the blessing of my family and in order to accumulate wealth so that I can um, give that to my family and serve my family. So the focus is always primarily on um, my wife and kids and being able to, to spend more time with them. And I'm very grateful, uh, you know, and to see a trend for more uh, paid parental leave and, and these sorts of things that will enable parents and, and, and to include fathers to spend more time with their kids and to be more available uh, to their wives, certainly during, you know, during pregnancy and in the first few months after childbirth. Um, so I, I think that uh, we have a culture that has become obsessive with this idea that the career is the end all and be all of, of our personhood. And I think that's just deeply uh, a misunderstanding of what we're called to in terms of uh, prioritization. Mm. And I felt like that you touch on it, Casey, in two ways. And if you're just joining me, you're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. That's Casey Chalk. He's an author and freelance writer. You can find him at CaseyChalk.com. That's C-H-A-L-K.com. I like that you mentioned that this idea of being the most fulfilled in your career and aspirations is problematic for both men and women. That men should ultimately see the primary end, the purpose of the career, the purpose of the job and, and the means is the means to provide for that family and that his energy enters back into the home. And that 1950s idolization of marriage really looks at men as, okay, they're the primary breadwinner, but then they come home and they kind of check out. They're around, but I mean, are they really, when we look at that 1950s version of like the perfect marriage, it's it's not a super involved uh, viewpoint. And I think that the idolization tends to be pinned on women of idolizing that 1950s view, but I think it's men as well. And that idea that their worth is in their career and that that's where they're valued. I remember even in college, where we had a marriage and family class and I remember a professor talking about like, hey, ladies, when you get married, make sure when your husband is done with work and he comes home, if he needs half an hour, if he needs two hours to just decompress before he can be, you know, really involved with the kids, allow him that time. And at the time I thought, oh, interesting. And, and when life came around, I got married. I just realized how unrealistic that is. Not to say that you bombard your spouse and don't see that there may need to be a transition time, but this idea that his work day ends when he enters the home, that's the problem is how we view work and that the greatest work we do is actually within our own homes. Oh, yes, exactly. And I think if we think about what things we most would want to um be remembered for our legacy. I mean, at least for myself, and I would hope that all Catholic fathers and husbands would feel the same way, is that my legacy would primarily be that of what I left for my children, what kind of children I raised. So, of course, um, my children's, uh, my relationship with my children trumps anything that I'm going to be able to accomplish uh, professionally um, with all of my writing or books or anything else. Um, so, uh, if my perspective is to ensure, like, the the, the well-being, the growth, the, the development and spiritual happiness um, and, and sort of, uh, you know, emotional well-being of my children so that they can grow up to be strong and faithful Catholics, then, of course, I'm going to be um, willing to invest 
tremendously in them outside of work and and give them time as soon as I come in the door. And I 100% agree with you, Timory. I think it's unrealistic for, um, uh, I think any time that there are these strong recommendations about what all men need in order to, you know, function uh, in, in, in a, in, in a household, I think that any kind of strong regulations are always going to be problematic just because we're, we're complicated, messy people. And, uh, you know, women are going to need mothers, mothers are going to need all kinds of help right as soon as the husband arrives. And, ju- you know, just because, um, you know, some psychologist says, Oh, you know, he needs 30 minutes or an hour to decompress. Well, <laughs> you know, the di- dinner's dinner's on, you know, the house is a mess. Kids need to be cleaned up. There's lots of things to be done, and you know, men just have to kind of step up and, and assume those roles. But like you said, I think we th- this all needs to ultimately be driven by uh, a deep and abiding love for the other, for you know, the most important person in our life, who is our spouse. So that we're we're checking in, we're being empathic to them when we're recognizing that they're kind of like at their you know at their end. So it's like, hey, you know, recognizing him. Hey, my wife's had a really hard week. Do you need a night out with? with your friends? Do you need to go for a walk tonight? You know what? Mm -hmm. I I think I can step up and I can do a little bit more so that you can have uh, a little bit of time so that you can kind of recharge or rest or whatever you need. So I think we, we, that needs to be kind of the basis of these healthier marriages. I think, I think that was what's lacking in lenses, lenses marriage. And what explains a lot of this Washington post article is, um, the fact that it didn't, at least from her husband's perspective, that he wasn't kind of stepping up to assume that role consistently. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting? Another side note that kind of was standing in the back of my mind is when you mentioned like that role that she wanted her husband to fill of helping here and there with some vacuuming, you know, with picking up some dinner, things like that, that we have this class distinction that I think is still very prevalent between blue collar and white collar workers. And I see this a lot with women who are wanting out of their marriages. They, they're looking down upon what could possibly be considered blue collar work of caring for children, of cleaning your house, of doing the cooking. And they're putting a value system on cooking and cleaning versus Perhaps it's publishing a book. Perhaps it's working in public relations. And we could talk about all these different types of careers, but the value system isn't on the task of doing the dishes that can be so mundane or the laundry, but it's the love that's put into who you're doing it for, that you're providing clothing. And as we're in this season of Lent, Casey, I think there's such a value as people of faith to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, seeing how they're being lived out, not just outside of the home, but within the home. You're clothing the naked, helping to clothe your children, uh, feeding the hungry. And we could dive into how that's being lived out and how virtuous and good those acts are and how the end of the caring is what the value is in the mundane element that could be labeled as a lesser type of work than what is possible and the potential for women's potential today. And I think that's what's interesting. In the end, that's much of the premise that Liz Lenz argues of, think of all the things that could have been accomplished if women were just allowed to flourish and allowed out of their marriages. And yet, at the end of the day, that Catholic mindset of marriage being freely, totally, and permanently entered into in a fruitful way there's a value in those transformative and even mundane elements of what can occur within marriage, but also fighting to preserve and protect those challenging elements 
of enabling or the damaging behaviors of your spouses. So, so much to think about. Casey Chalk's with me here today. We're going to come back and he'll share his incredible story of a neighbor he had named Captain Bob. I hope you'll stay with me. I read this story, Casey. I laughed, I cringed, and I was smiling as I went through it. So I hope you'll stick with us to hear the incredible story of Captain Bob. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. How's your Lent going? Have you kept your resolutions, ditched them, changed them? We'll dive into that in just a little bit here on Trending. I'd love to hear from you if you've navigated your... Lenten resolutions and you're finding a new means. Maybe you found that you weren't being as happy and kind as you needed to, so you changed up what you're doing. Love to hear from you. Our toll-free line is 888-914-9149, and it's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. More on that and three clinics who perform in vitro fertilization have stopped business in Alabama. I'll share about that in just a minute. Joining me now is Casey Chalk. He's an author and freelance writer. You can find him at caseychalk.com. That's C-H-A-L-K.com. We'll post a link on social media as well as in the episode notes for today's show. But I was reading an article he recently wrote on First Things about Captain Bob, his old neighbor, and I was laughing, smiling, and cringing at times during the story. And I'd hope that you would come on and share your story about your old neighbor, Captain Bob, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Captain Bob was a neighbor that we had uh, in Northern Virginia. We moved into a single family home um, a few years ago and the neighbor, the, the previous owners had told us that we needed to make uh, quick friends with uh, Captain Bob. And I found him uh, to be certainly a very interesting person, um, <laughs> kind of like your classic um, New York, Long Island accent and personality, kind of gruff and, uh, you know, rough around the edges. Um, but ultimately a, a deeply uh, friendly and, and kind man who really blessed my family. Um, and so I wanted to tell his story um, after he, uh, he passed away uh, uh, more than a year ago um, because I thought it was so emblematic of the kind of relationship that um, young men need to have with older male mentors and then alternatively what older men need from younger men in their lives. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, Captain Bob was, he was called Captain because he uh, served in the Vietnam War um, and then afterwards had a very long and successful uh, career in the federal government uh, here in the, in the D.C. area. Um, but, you know, he, he had a, a, a very classic kind of uh, Irish and Italian Catholic upbringing, raised his kids in the faith, but like a lot of other people of his generation, ultimately... Um, left the faith, um, more or less, had not, had not gone to church for many years, not gone to confession for many years. Um, and so even though he had raised his own kids in the faith, it was something that perhaps to some degree because of the destabilizing effects of the Second Vatican Council was something that ultimately he decided he didn't really need in his life. But he retained a lot of the, the great um, attributes that a lot of um, people, Catholics of that generation had. He had a, a deep love for children 
um, a deep desire to, to bless his neighbor. And that manifested itself in so many different ways. Um, he had a garden in, uh, in his backyard that the entire neighborhood was uh, welcome to use because it had some of the best soil. So everybody would come over uh, in the spring and, and you know, plant and, uh, and, har- and harvest in the uh, summer and fall. Um, so just a really fantastic gentleman. But so we developed a lot of um, rapport over time. Like I said, he was a bit rough around the edges. There was a lot of bossing me around and kind can of Can you share telling some of me those about early how I should... stories about when you first met him and is it from mowing your lawn? I thought these stories were great. Oh yeah, sure. So right after we moved in, it was the spring. And so uh, I need to get a lawnmower because we had been in a townhouse before and didn't need that for lawn care. Um, and so uh, I went and bought one uh, at a consignment sale, got a good deal on it. And so I go out to mow my lawn on a Saturday morning and he immediately comes out and he's yelling at me and telling me, demanding to know what I'm doing. And I explained to him, well, you know, I got this lawnmower here. I'm planning to mow my lawn because I'm a brand new homeowner and I'm going to take responsibility for my property and whatnot. And he said, no, you're not going to mow your lawn. I'm going to mow your lawn. You're going to spend time with your kids. I want you playing with your kids right now. Well, you know, I found, found that a little bit um, unnerving because, uh, you know, it is my own property. And I also get to decide when I'm going to spend time with my kids and when a when I'm going to get work done, but all you the same, know you know, it was motive. <laughs> right. No, I didn't know him at all. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I understood that it was motivated by this, uh, this feeling, this deep feeling that he had that parents, fathers, especially needed to be spending time with their kids and playing with them. And he viewed, you know, the fact that he was in retirement, that he had a rider lawnmower, that he was able to bless me, um, by, you know, freeing up my time. Um, and so there's, there's many examples of, of things like that. But, you know, over time, we developed uh, a very strong relationship and friendship. And um, he, you know, came uh, to a lot of events that my kids had. He came to my daughter's ballet recitals and came to watch my son play baseball. Um, just very much invested in our family. But um, and, and so it was, a, it was a great outlet for him because he was able to, to give back um, in his retirement and not being surrounded by, you know, kids anymore since his kids had all uh, flew the coop. Um, but alternatively, it was it was such a tremendous blessing for me because even though he was not himself, he was a man of of great virtue um, and dignity, and uh, and I learned a lot from him and loved to go and just kind of hear his stories about um, his service in Vietnam and then what it was like um, raising kids in Northern Virginia in the seventies and eighties. So there was there was a a great reciprocity in our relationship where I was able to learn a lot from him. Um, and perhaps our, my family was able to you know, give him um, friendships in a, in a sort of a time of loneliness and sadness because he had lost his wife. He was a widower. But alternatively, he was able to bless us so much and give so much of his self um, to us uh, through his love um, and through his, you know, his service in so many ways for my family. So mm-hmm. we, um, I felt the need to kind of tell his story because I thought, like I said, it was so, it's so emblematic of a generation that um, – I think in some some respects was deeply hurt by the church and it, and the changes that it experienced in the 60s and 70s, but also to some degree that they also were, you know, um, responsible for having left on their own. Um, but ultimately, as I describe in the article, Captain Bob, he knew that he needed to make his peace with God. And uh, my wife stayed on him. My, I credit my wife with being the one to really um, aggressively push to get a priest in front of him once he eventually left uh, the house and moved into uh, assisted living um, and uh, ensure that he was able to reconcile with Christ uh, through the sacrament of confession. So, you know, of course, we, we never know what, um, 
what people's last moments with God is and, and what those, what, what that inner internal conversation is between, uh, between themselves and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But, you know, I'm, we're very hopeful that, you know, God, um, you know, had mercy on him and, uh, you know, ultimately was able to bring him home and restore him to that early faith that he had been raised in himself. Casey, your story reminds me with your relationship with Captain Bob in many ways of the epitome of the generational divide today. And you could characterize it between sons and fathers, father-in-laws and son-in-laws, neighbor to neighbor. And there's this line in your article where you say, when I arrived home from work, there was Bob sitting in his garage as if he'd spent all day waiting to instruct me on the finer points of homeownership and how he really sometimes railed on you for different things you could do the way you should do them. And I find there's such a sensitivity among young men today with regard to this mentorship and arguably the poor delivery that can absolutely occur sometimes from the older generation or the pridefulness from the younger generation of not being told what to do or how to do it or to receive help. And I think that you speak keenly to the necessity of male mentorship for younger men and younger boys. I'm not just talking, you know, 20 something year olds, but you know, men who are younger, just a little younger and that divide, cultural divide and generational divide and how helpful it can be in benefiting both sides of the relationship. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think this is a significant problem that we have in our society right now is that um, generationally we are so segregated and, you know, we, we're so quick to push um, the the elderly people who are retired into their own communities. I mean, not just push them, but they often want to go. They want to go spend time with each other. I mean, there's that, I forget the name of it, the, the massive community in Florida um, that uh, is many miles long where there's just, you know, thousands of retirees all living with other retirees. And I think that's, that's so sad because they have so much to give um, to the younger generations. There's so much that we need from them. But alternatively, we have so much to give to them and help them to kind of um, stay young, but also to give them the opportunity to bless us with the stories and experiences um, and personalities that they have. So I think it's tremendously important that um, young people, people of my millennial generation and those who are, who are younger to look, look for those kinds of relationships and identify ways to, to develop a more rapport um, and mutual understanding with people of older generations so that they can, they can learn and bless one another. I was actually just talking to a, a, a very close coworker, friend of mine, and he told me, I couldn't believe this, that um, not long after he graduated from college and he was working uh, here in the D.C. area, that he would go over to one of the local retirement communities and just play cards and dominoes with them, you know, like once or twice a week. And uh, the fact that he did that for years, developing relationship with these people who, you know, were just not really getting a lot of face time with younger folks and just how remarkable of a witness and gift it is um, and, and requires so little from us. Um, so yeah, I would, I would just emphasize the need for that kind of intergenerational contact because it, it helps us also appreciate, you know, the blessings that we have, where we've come from and what's going to be required of us in turn, uh, you know, as we uh, develop into um, those same kinds of people in time. 
I think it's a great example of the relationships we need to work on cultivating, the patience we need to have, whether it's with getting to know neighbors, tolerating conversations with people that I think sometimes it's easy to say, I don't have the time of day for. You know, there are plenty of people in our community. I'm so blessed that we've moved into a community where neighbors want to be neighborly at a time when a lot of the time people avoid eye contact. I have one of those and at all costs try not to be seen that we do need those relationships and that it can foster and fuel great goodness in the younger generation and it can build up that appreciation and that love that's needed in the older generation that's increasingly lonely in the culture of separation and isolation that we live in. So thank you for sharing your story because I thought that was a beautiful story and prayers for the soul of Captain Bob. But if you want to check out more from Casey Chalk, you can find him at CaseyChalk.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y. Chalk is spelled C-H-A-L-K.com. He's an author and freelance writer. And we'll post a link to his story about Captain Bob as well on social media and in the episode notes found at RelevantRadio.com forward slash trending. I'll be right back and I'd love to hear how Lent's going for you. Have you adjusted or adapted what you're working on? And also some news about three IVF clinics in Alabama who shut their doors. talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. This is a topic we will take up more in depth tomorrow and in the days to come, but I want to touch on how good this is. So you may have heard the news that the Alabama Supreme Court a couple weeks ago said that babies in the earliest stages of development, known as embryos, are human children. And they have similar protection to our two, my three-year-old, my one-year-old, an eight-year-old. And what's happened as a result? Well, a lot has occurred in the last couple weeks, but one of which occurred over the weekend, three in vitro fertilization clinics have shut down. Three businesses that I'm going to be very blunt, and I know this will ruffle some feathers, but I hope you'll stay with me today and tomorrow. Three businesses, IVF businesses, that prey on the horrible and challenging experience of infertility of women and men. For They profit, and they are doing business on the backs of men and women who are struggling to conceive babies. IVF is a horrific process that damages mom, damages the relationship between husband and wife. It damages the women who eggs are harvested from. It damages the women who carry babies to term, operating as surrogates or gestational carriers, whatever you want to call them. It harms the children who often, before they're even conceived... Their parents have already signed away any relationship to them. It's the bartering of children. Now, I know that in vitro fertilization is looked at as a solution to infertility. And yes, some people have babies because of the use of in vitro fertilization. I know people who have. Perhaps you are a child of IVF. Perhaps you have had children via in vitro fertilization. We celebrate every single human life that exists, but that doesn't mean the means and the way of getting there 
is right. Oh, my little baby snuck over to the door and she's hanging out right outside. She heard me hanging out. Um, so here's the deal. When we look at in vitro fertilization and the challenges that IVF poses, what we see is that three IVF clinics have shut the door because why? Alabama Supreme Court says embryos are human children and they're protecting, enshrining this protection in the Constitution that they already see there as the right for these children to live. These right for these children to not just be bartered and sold. And so what's happening is the IVF clinics are shutting down business, seemingly temporarily. We'll see what happens. We're currently seeing a push in the Senate to make a universal right to IVF treatment as a solution to infertility. But here's a question I'll pose to you. Have you ever talked to someone who went through with in vitro fertilization as a means to have children? Well, tomorrow here on Trending, Dr. Susan Caldwell will join me to share her story. She's a fertility and infertility specialist who helps women with solutions that aren't IVF. But many years ago, before she ever did that, she had babies via in vitro fertilization, and she wouldn't recommend it to anyone. She'll share her story here on Trending. More and more I'm hearing from people who have tried to conceive via in vitro fertilization with failed attempts, having gone into debt. Many, more often than not, don't have children after the multiple rounds of IVF. Some do, and those are the stories you hear celebrated. But what we don't often hear are the marriages that fall apart or the people crippled by in vitro fertilization. Dr. Susan Caldwell actually almost died from the entire process of IVF, and she'll share her story here. But the bottom line is, is that we're seeing good news when it comes to places such as Alabama and the Supreme Court there in Alabama saying embryos, that is babies who are in the early stages of development, are human children and have protections that they should have just as a two-year-old, a five-year-old, or a 10-year-old. But we'll also discuss, and what is near and dear to my heart, are the real solutions that need to be discussed with regard to fertility and infertility, treating and addressing underlying health conditions. My story is one of them, having polycystic ovarian syndrome and Hashimoto's disease, both of which make it difficult in, in the public medical community's eyes, seemingly impossible to have children. But NAPRO technology is a incredible form of medicine and science that helps to treat and address women's health issues impacting fertility. And so I hope that we can share the good news that these three IVF clinics have shut down as a means to discuss real solutions and hope and healing. So if you can, join me tomorrow here on Trending as Dr. Susan Caldwell shares her story of having gone through with in vitro fertilization and why she wouldn't recommend it to anyone. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. How's your Lent going? I wanted to do a check-in because here we are a couple weeks into Lent and I was talking to a couple friends the other night and they said, I started the first three days of Lent. And I was really gung-ho on what I was planning to do. And then I realized I had to change it. They took on too much, maybe took on too little. Uh, It's interesting because as there's this return to asceticism within the church that is so good. And asceticism is a practice of engaging in various forms of penances and mortifications as we do during the season of Lent to push us to, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to grow. So that would mean things such as taking up fasting, little sacrifices. It's funny, my three-year-old, I was talking to her 
when Lent began. And I said, well, we're in the season of Lent and we're supposed to make little sacrifices for Jesus. And that's the majority of the conversation that we had because she's three and she looks at me and her immediate response, it was almost this visceral reaction. And she loves talking about Jesus. She loves giving him kisses. She loves saying her prayers. Such a beautiful little prayer. I love it. But she had this visceral reaction that I think characterizes many of our reactions when it comes to asceticism or making sacrifices and, and fasting. And she goes, I don't want to make little sacrifices. I don't want to do those things. And I wasn't even asking her to do anything. I was simply telling her what Lent was, that we make little sacrifices for Jesus. Sometimes we do things that we don't really feel like doing. And it was funny to me because when we look at Lent, sometimes we're viscerally opposed to doing anything that's difficult. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we have these lofty ideas of the most challenging things that we can do that we think will affect the most growth in ourselves. And then we find out, I was talking to a friend the other night who's doing a pretty intense means of fasting and dieting during Lent. And she was sharing about all these other areas of her life where she was really lacking an immense amount of self-control. And I finally just said, I said, pardon my bluntness, but I said, you have incredible self-control with the dieting that you're doing during Lent. But it sounds like what is typical in our lives when we work on, let's say, self-control in one area, we tend to lack it immensely in others because we're solely focused in this area. It's sort of that idea of fasting is good and important. However, if our fasting leads us to be hangry, mean, cruel, and lashing out at others, it isn't necessarily the way that we're supposed to act. We're supposed to bring about greater charity, virtue, and conversion. It doesn't mean it can be easy. It can be difficult to fast, and we can offer that in union with Christ. However, We have to be able to respond with love to other people in the midst of those moments. So here we are in the season of Lent. The church calls us to that threefold penance of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And so this is a great check-in for me, something I'm doing. Am I working on incorporating all three of those penances, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving? We kicked off Lent taking a deep dive into almsgiving. What is it? Is it just giving to the poor, to charity? Is it, it's also, we dove into how it's related to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy and how the corporal and spiritual works of mercy don't always have to be sought out as outside of our own home, but often they're a means and opportunity to exercise them within our own home. And so I want to encourage you to take this as an opportunity to do a little bit of rediscernment when it comes to your Lenten journey, the sacrifices you've taken on, the penances you're engaging in. Are you fasting? praying and engaging in almsgiving in one way or another daily. And I want to encourage you, if you're struggling this Lent with the commitments you've made or the lack of commitments, we've all been there. I've had seasons where, oh no, I'm this far into Lent and I really am not doing much. I didn't make a plan. I want to encourage you to schedule your Lent. Schedule that time in the day. If you're fasting, make sure you know from what times. Make sure that you ate the right food the day before or that you ate something before your fasting was supposed to begin. If you're praying, do you just say that you're going to pray more? Or do you know what prayers or what time or where you'll be? Will you sit? Will you kneel? Will you stand? What type of accountability do you have for yourself this Lent? Because 
It's very easy for Lent to be that only season that we do that deep work. And my hope is is that we'll do the deep work this Lent, but then it will be the catalyst for what takes us into the rest of the year. The catalyst of what takes us into the Easter season, celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ. And that we too are entering into his resurrection as new creation, a new creation in Christ. That's why we have the symbol of the Easter egg and the rabbits. Rabbits mate profusely, a symbol of new life. Eggs are a symbol of new life, the potency of new life. So I also challenge you as you're reconsidering how things are going this Lent, when you made your plan for what you want to do, did you consider your state in life? I think this is a significant one. I was talking to a friend a couple nights ago, and she said, my husband and I have to remember the state in life we're in when we're looking at what we're navigating for Lent and sacrifices. He's not in a monastery and I'm not in a convent. We live a family life. And so those commitments we're making, are we scheduling the time to engage them or are they negatively impacting our family life? Are the sacrifices we're engaging in enhancing our life or are they diminishing it? I think all of that comes down to being aware of the penances we're engaged in and navigating how they're bringing about true virtue and conversion to our Lord this Lent so that we can see a new creation in ourselves that was affected by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection that he's calling us to participate in as well. Up next is the Family Rosary Across America. I'll be back tomorrow. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Have you ever talked to someone who went through with IVF in vitro fertilization as a means to have children to try and solve the infertility they're experiencing? Dr. Susan Caldwell will join me Friday on Trending. She's a fertility specialist helping women with solutions that aren't IVF. Many years ago, she had babies via IVF and wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Join me to hear Susan's story, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.